May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent, and we land right smack dab in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. But before we start talking about the passage we heard today, I think it's helpful for us to remind ourselves what's just occurred in the Gospel of Matthew before this passage. So the thing that just occurred in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. And you remember that story well, right? Jesus is in the water, and as he's being baptized, the heavens open up, the Spirit rests on him, and we hear this voice from heaven say, You are my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And immediately after that, in the Gospel of Matthew, the Spirit whisks Jesus away into the wilderness, where he stays and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get confused and I start thinking that Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. But that's not true. He wasn't tempted for that period of time. He was fasting for that time. And Satan only enters the scene to tempt him after he has been starving himself for 40 whole days, right? Satan's a tricky one. There's a cartoon that I found a couple years ago that catalogs Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness. It's really simple. It's just a black and white sketch. And it's 40 still pictures that are shown in succession. And each one has a number in the quarter. So day one, day two, day three. And one of the reasons I like it is because at the beginning of Jesus's time in the wilderness, it kind of, he's kind of looks happy about it. Like he's going on vacation. Um, And there are pictures of him kind of like chasing chickens in the desert. I didn't know there were chickens in the desert, but in this cartoon, there are chickens in the desert. Um, He's chasing birds. He's kind of in awe of the cacti and the plants that are growing in the desert. And he looks like he's just having a grand old time kind of observing all that there is to see in the wilderness. Until about day 30, when he starts to look a little worse for the wear. And day 30 through 40, winds are blowing his clothes, and he looks really emaciated and ragged. And about day 38, 39, and 40, he's just laying flat on his back in the hollow of a cave, wishing he were dead. And that's when the serpent shows up. So the other thing I like about this cartoon is that the devil in it is portrayed as a snake. And it's the color red. It's the only thing in the entire cartoon that has a color. And the snake slithers in and out of the pictures all throughout the 40 days. But it doesn't come near Jesus until the very end. One of my favorite lay people who writes a a consistent commentary on the biblical passages, Debbie Thomas, wrote that Satan approaches Jesus when he is literally at the end of his rope. He is physically at the end of his rope. He hasn't eaten anything for 40 days and 40 nights. He's mentally at the end of his rope. He has no other companion in the wilderness. He's just by himself. And he's spiritually at the end of his rope. Here he is having this mountaintop experience at his baptism where the spirit lights upon him, where he hears the voice of God call him not only son, but beloved. 
And I bet at day 40, he's kind of wondering if any of that was true. So Satan waits until Jesus is at the end of his rope, physically, mentally, and spiritually. And that's when Satan chooses to engage him. Now, I don't know about you, but it's true for me that it's a lot easier to give in to temptation when I am physically, mentally, and spiritually exhausted. So this is when the devil comes to Jesus. Now, what does he say? What does he suggest that Jesus should do? Well, the first thing he says is, man, you've been starving. Haven't had anything to eat for 40 days. You're the son of God. Why don't you take something like a stone and turn it into bread and feed yourself? Now, that's not a really bad temptation, right? It kind of makes sense. The guy's starving. He's the son of God. Why doesn't he just make food for himself? Second thing that the devil requests is he says, listen, you could be out of this situation in 2.5 seconds. All you have to do is call on those heavenly hosts of angels to come rescue you. You're the son of God. Certainly if you call them, they'll take you out of the wilderness and out of your misery. Doesn't really seem like a bad temptation. It seems perfectly rational and reasonable. Who wouldn't want to be rescued from that situation? And the last thing that the devil asked Jesus to do is to look out at all the lands that he could see far and wide. And he says, listen, if you bow down and worship me, all that you see will be yours and everybody will praise you. Well, if Jesus really is the son of God, he's worthy of the, the praise and glory that all the nations have to give. So not necessarily a bad temptation, except for maybe the worshiping Satan part, but, you know, a pretty rational and reasonable thing and glory that, that the Son of God deserves, right? So really on the surface, none of these temptations are bad, per se. They would just be giving into something for all the wrong reasons. And like any true temptation, we have to look at what is underneath all of them. Because it's really not about bread, and it's not about being rescued, and it's not about glory. The temptation that is undergirding all of these questions is self-sufficiency. Jesus, you could rescue yourself by turning this stone into bread. Feed yourself. You can do it. You don't need God. Jesus, you can get yourself out of the wilderness. Those angels will come and rescue. You can do it yourself. You don't need God. Jesus, all nations that you see will bow down and worship you if you worship me. You can do it. You don't need God. It's all a push away from dependence on God and into self-sufficiency. And isn't that something every human being struggles with? The notion that we can do it all on our own, that we ourselves can fix our problems, or that we ourselves doom each other, ourselves, to ultimate failure, self-sufficiency, a great myth. Let me tell you something, humankind is really consistent because isn't that what's going on in our reading from Genesis today too? At the very beginning, when Adam and Eve are in that lush garden full of anything and everything they could ever want. God has been so faithful to them and the one thing God says is just don't eat the fruit of this tree over here. So what does that serpent do? Right? Smart. 
says, listen, the reason God doesn't want you to eat that fruit is because if you do, you will know everything God knows. You could do it all on your own. You could be self-sufficient. You won't need God anymore. And that sounds really appealing to Adam and Eve because what if God's not faithful? What if God doesn't continue to show up for us? What if God doesn't forgive us when we make mistakes? It'll be best if we just do it on our own. And so they eat that fruit. You know, we are not a lot different than Adam and Eve and Jesus because we are still tempted by this myth of self-sufficiency. I don't know if any of you watch um, the PBS show Frontline. So about in 2004, they did um, a documentary called The Persuaders. And it was about the uh, marketing industry, about advertising. And what they did was look at trends in advertising kind of ever since it began until now, modern times. And they noticed a shift along the way. So initially, when marketers advertise products, they focused on the quality of their product. So like, we have the best chocolate syrup ever. It is sourced from the best cocoa trees in the best place, grown with the best farmers who cared for it. That's all they did. They focused on the quality of the product. What we sell is the best product. Well, a few decades later, what they focused on is getting celebrity endorsements. If we tell these famous people to tell other people that our product is the best, then everybody else will buy it. And then now what we have is marketing that basically tells us, if you buy this thing, your life will be better. If you buy this full coverage foundation, you will look 20 years younger. If you go get that Tesla, your social calendar will fill up because people will all want to have dates with you and they will want to ride in your car. If you buy the very best laptop, you will achieve more than any of your colleagues. You will be the best person in your office. Do you hear what's going on here? It's the same temp temptation. It's the same myth. It's that myth of self-sufficiency. If I buy this, I can do it on my own. If I own this, I will be the best. I will be the most successful. Or the converse. I can't buy that, so I am doomed to failure. I can't get my hands on that, so I'll never succeed. It's the same story over and over and over again. And that's why we need to hear this reading every year the first Sunday in Lent. Because how does Jesus get himself out of this situation? He does two things. He remembers who he is, and he remembers whose he is. He remembers that at his baptism, God called him beloved, and God called him son. And he remembers that the God that he belongs to is always faithful, no matter where you are, in the wilderness, no matter what you've done, made mistakes. God is always with you, and God is always faithful. In the season of Lent, we're supposed to take time to make space in our lives for God. We're supposed to eliminate 
the distractions, the things that have pulled us away from our relationship with God. We're supposed to take time to really examine our inner life, to take accountability for some of the things we've done and haven't done. And all of that is really hard work. And if we don't remember in this time of Lent who we are and whose we are, it's going to be a lot harder. Remembering who we are and whose we are will ground us spiritually. It will ground us mentally and emotionally. It will ground us physically. We need to remember more than ever during this season of Lent that we are beloved children of God. At our baptisms, that was said of us, and it is still true today. And we also need to be reminded of the fact that we, the God that we serve, the God that we belong to, is always faithful. God didn't promise that our life would be easy or pain-free. God promised that God would be with us no matter what. Through peak and valley, through garden and wilderness, God is there and faithfully by our side. So this Lenten season, I hope that you, will, you are able to hear the words that God spoke over you at your baptism, that you are beloved, and that you belong to a God who will never forsake you and never leave you, no matter where you go or what you do. May it be true for you this day and forever. Amen.